0: relying on you for a uh, coherent commentary we typically <laughs> we typically are mostly goofs
1: yeah we just act like giant idiots and then we just put <laughs> so much on our guests to just uh fill in the blanks or something at all
2: i will do what i can
1: i appreciate it who gets madder um gamers or soccer fans
2: soccer fans are pretty hostile but i I don't know if there's anything on the level of game video games right now. It's like, I, nothing that I can think of off the top of my head anyway.
1: Um, I don't know anything about soccer, but I figured if anyone could challenge the mantle of gamer, it might be hooligans, but it's Uh, it's a thing to learn.
2: I wrote a bunch of stuff previous to that about MMA and UFC fans are, pretty bad on the grand scale of sports fans it's not great so that's the closest thing i can think of in sports probably is like mma fans are are pretty lousy overall baseline
0: (laughs) are you kidding the the most progressive podcaster alive joe rogan used to be MMA. oh
2: boy (laughs) yeah (laughs) what's what what should give you an idea is like in MMA circles Joe Rogan is like a learned renaissance man. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I would Which, believe and, it. And though. I'm not even like I'm not even joking about that. It's like oh like here's the smart guy that reads books and it's Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get depressed about the level oh, of stuff
1: there. Damn. Yeah. That's, that's about what I what I thought.
2: They just they much like games they spent like A decade like cultivating a very, very specific demographic, and and that's what you get. Even sports fans are like too soft for uh, for what they were going for, which you can imagine turned out real well for him.
1: Rogan does this amazing thing that I'm not surprised that that works on people who aren't particularly paying attention to him uh, in a deeper way. Just in the sense, like I remember when he was talking to Adam Conover. And Adam Conover was like, scientists say there's no alpha wolf. That's that's a made up thing. And Joe Rogan was just like, well, let's change the language. What if we're talking about a tough guy who's strong? And he's, Adam <laughs> Conover is just like, no, it's that's it's basically the same thing. And he's like, no, 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 don't look at the language. It's about a tough guy who's you know all that, like me. I'm you know kind of. Oh my god! And it was. It was so funny to me, just like, I can, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> Let's change the language. What about a guy who does tons and tons of DMT? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so he's always I, asking questions and changing the language.
2: I, I, that, that's, like, the exact thing about him is, like, he's, he's totally willing to ask questions. But it's certain questions about certain things and other things he just accepts like blindly and and what he's willing to question or what he's not is real telling most of the time.
0: I think the one time yeah. i I saw I can't remember if it was like I think it was Dave Rubin he completely fucking shut down, who was like uh talking about building codes <laughs> yeah. Joe Rogan educates Dave Rubin about the importance of building (laughs) codes and regulations. Oh my god. I know we're
1: both vaguely right wing here, but we gotta get the building codes right.
0: Yeah, (laughs)
2: like... Super depressing is he's like, in a lot of ways, like, the dude means well, and like, as far as, like, I, I mean, he wants drugs to be legalized and he's not like completely regressive about certain things it's it, like there there are things that he's got an open mind about it's just like how far he's willing to stretch that and where his uh like like where he's willing to question things and and it's usually like willing to question like uh, that the moon landing's not real but not <laughs> really question why you know feminism might be all right I guess is, is, uh, is where he's willing to stretch it. Hmm. His
1: interview with Bernie Sanders comparatively to a lot of interviews with Bernie Sanders was decent because he just asked Bernie Sanders, his lame brain questions. And Bernie <laughs> had a great answer for everything. Yeah. Um, I mean,
2: he's, he's a charismatic dude. He's good on a microphone. He's been doing it for, you know, between stand-up and MMA and acting forever. And like, I, I get why people get like drawn into it. And I also like, I'm not like, there are certain things he's okay on. And I don't think he's like, as I don't think he's as dangerous as like some of the people he platforms or like, uh, like some of the people who are fans like of Bernie him, Bernie Sanders, infamous <laughs> <Yeah>. sexist. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> That's this is. The Bernie Sanders takedown (laughs) podcast. We tricked you. Um, Yeah, coming on. We're using your name forever to
2: promote. I did not see that coming. (laughs) Oh boy!
1: All right, uh, should we should we segue into the podcast itself?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that sounds great. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Games Are the Worst Thing on Earth. I'm your host Alton. With me, as always, is Reese. Hey. And today we have another brave truth teller about the reality of video games. Josh, how are you doing? Hi, how's it going? It's going good.
1: I'm, I'm excited, Josh. We have our first, the, the closest thing to a game journalist <laughs> we've ever had on the podcast. And I just want to ask you, how's taking down video games going?
2: <laughs> um, not great
0: not great overall. <laughs> oh, I'm so, sorry to hear that.
2: Yeah. I'm uh yeah. I've I've written probably 3 f- 3 or 4 published things about video games. So that's that's I guess that qualifies me. I think so. I mean,
0: I I think it, it it's not how many you've read, it's how many times you've been called the soy boy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got got plenty of that.
0: Yeah. So I think you're qualified. Yeah. Uh and so we wanted to have uh you on because you wrote a very interesting article for The Outline called No Shit, Video Games Are Political, They're Conservative. And uh, when we saw this story, it immediately piqued our interest because this is uh, 100% within uh, our wheelhouse of forcing our politics into video games, shoving our politics down gamers' throats. Uh (laughs) And the the
1: inherent thesis of the article could also be say is very much what this podcast is about is that a lot of what gamers are and video games are right now is something that's very reactionary and means very conservative and that maybe pulling the Overton window as fruitless as that effort might be hmm. is at least something worth acknowledging.
2: Yeah, I I absolutely think it's worth at least making the effort, even if uh, Mm -hmm. it hasn't had that much success so far.
0: (laughs) I think that one of the most frustrating things about being into video games and also being somebody who has also into politics, uh, those those are sort of like uh, two of my hobby horses. And it's very frustrating to me. As a fan of video games, that unlike basically every other artistic medium, having a conversation in general about the politics in the art form is discouraged heavily. Like, you think about film, books, even like music, paintings, like, you can talk politics about basically every other single medium except
2: for the biggest and fastest growing one. In the entire world, I think there's a good argument to be made that part of that comes from the same, like, original source that some of the stuff I talked about in the article comes from, which is if you sell stuff as a toy and something frivolous for kids, and then it blows up afterward, you're still dealing with the remnants of that long after. Mm. And so if it's just a toy, like, why are we talking about anything deeper? No one's really talking about, I mean, we probably should be, but nobody talks about the politics of Transformers. Or no, talking uh, about the
0: politics know. of Stretch Armstrong. <laughs>
2: it, it, exactly. I mean, it'd it, it definitely be worth talking about that stuff, but we don't really. And so the the right. thing we've got into now is like, hey, we, we want to be taken seriously as an art form, but we've pushed for so long that, like, this is just something for you know, teenagers or whatever. And now there's this like pushback and there's none of the structures that got built up and people who are, I mean, there are tons and tons of like academics and critics Hmm. who follow this stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't really penetrate the mainstream the same way that uh, like film criticism does. Some of that's just age, but some of it's definitely how they sold it to begin with. That's very interesting to
0: me because I literally last night watched a documentary on Ralph Bakshi by animation, are are you guys familiar with ralph bakshi yeah no i don't think so all right he's the guy who animated felix the cat and wizard wars not felix the cat um fritz 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 the cat cat. that's it fritz the cat he animated fritz the cat which is like the first x-rated animated movie he was very much famous or infamous you could say for creating animated pictures for adults and one of the things that he talks about is that Walt Disney was such a colossal force in the animation industry that he is basically the person who put into everyone's minds that cartoons are for kids. Because before, prior to like the success of Walt Disney in the 1920s, cartoons were something that are considered for like everyone, adults and children. That's really only after Walt Disney that you get this perception, and I think that video games sort of had that uh, that same issue overcoming this preconception
2: yeah i, I absolutely think it, it's a it's a very similar thing and the the like throat clearing caveat i want to do at the beginning of this is one is freelance writers don't get to choose their headlines most of the time so <laughs> what, what I, i'm talking about specifically is not video games like every single video game i mean there are like the indie scene and smaller titles and even some AAA games that are doing things like outside of the box and that are made by all a, a huge diverse cast of people that are covering all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah. like, that is not... <laughs> Those people generally don't have like 600 people and unlimited resources working on a game that gets you know 50 million dollars worth of advertising. So I'm talking about a very specific like triple A uh, type of game, mm-hmm. and also like a bunch of people. One of the criticisms I got, and and this is fair, was that you know i kind of glossed over like the japanese scene so I, I am to some degree talking about north america <laughs> and europe english language games but i, I mean and, and there are some different things going on in the japanese scene but let's not act like nintendo is not a super conservative mm. you know copyright monster too so like i i think some of this carries over to a lot of that too and i, I even had a couple of people say indie games are better and and they they have other things going on but there's a lot of this overlaps into indie games too so i I guess i'm I'm not saying all video games but i do think you get that push in the main core and the main advertising that creates this idea of what a gamer is and once you built that up like it is real hard to break and it's there's not any one force like disney in cartoons i don't think but once you've created the idea for a decade from, you know, whenever Nintendo started to hit big and the, they started to come out of the crash till, you know, the mid-90s, like, it takes a long time to break. I mean, all those people are still growing up playing games and and have continued to. And so y- to, to say, like, well, we did this this whole time, but now, you know, we're back to games are for everybody again is a real hard thing to to break.
0: Well, speaking of Walt Disney, I would honestly argue that Nintendo is the closest thing to that uh, Walt Disney-esque figure in the games industry. Because before they were making uh, video games, they were literally a toy manufacturer.
2: Yeah. And, yeah.
0: Uh, and I think that that philosophy 100% carried over into like, their game-making business, where it was very much for kids, it was very family-friendly... And the fact that they like single handedly resurge the video game
2: industry has a lot to do with where the culture is now. They get a huge, it may be slightly unfair, and and like home computers and stuff were doing this Mm -hmm. too, but they get a huge portion of the, I I guess blame is the correct way to put it, for (laughs) marketing to like marketing it as a toy to boys starting Mm -hmm. when they lost. And so I I think it's unfair to purely blame Nintendo, because I think a lot of companies and computer companies were doing the same thing. But that's, to back your argument, that like mid 80s push that they said, like, this is who we're marketing to gets put pretty squarely on Nintendo's Western marketing a lot. So that's, that doesn't seem unfair to me.
1: And I have uh, previously, perhaps uh, unfairly, but my, my uh, assertion on previous podcasts is that Nintendo fans are stealth the worst fans in video games. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, just because uh, there are plenty of Nintendo fans who are fine, of course. In, in and when you make broad generalizations like this, of course, it's, it doesn't and hit some everyone. Some
0: Nintendo fans, I assume are good people. Uh,
1: yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> But if you look at like the, all the biggest gaming shitheads online, it's always Nintendo that's closest to their hearts. If you all look at the Smash drama that goes on, if you look at the Pokemon drama that goes on, there's always just that extra edge of just like, what the fuck? please just grow up a little bit and just be straight racist or straight (laughs) like a normal person (laughs) instead of acting these weird uh, like layers into it. Like the, the smash uh, champion who like had the underage girlfriend that he brought across state lines and everybody was saying the N word and you're just like, just chill out. But yeah, I, I think that there's something about there being just the toy aspect that really pushes things into that mm. reactionary realm and that has influenced uh, a lot of different uh, kind of games going forward because that's that's the touchstone of gaming today is sitting down and playing mario on the nintendo
2: i i think on that same disney tip they definitely benefit from a ton of nostalgia and love for their characters in getting away with even more than a lot of other companies like they are just brutal about like ip takedown notices for people who are like modding their games or doing videos they're they're just brutal about their intellectual property they're notoriously conservative about stuff and everybody just much like disney everybody brushes it off because like you remember playing with yoshi when you're a kid and so like nintendo can't be a bad monstrous corporation. So I I definitely Mm. think they get like a a huge benefit of the doubt from people who, you know, this is what they played when they were kids and how can it possibly be bad? But I, I I think they get away with murder because of that. I want to add another piece of
0: evidence to the, to the Nintendo fans are stealth, the worst fans in video games, because when you think about it, what empty cockroach infested boxes lie behind the quartering. <laughs> <laughs> They're all old Nintendo boxes, the Nintendo Mini, just <laughs> a pile of, a gargantuan pile of gaming trash. Yep.
1: It, not to put too much on Nintendo, because all these guys have a pile of nerd shit on their nerd wall. Um, and, you know, you can point your finger at plenty of properties, but I just think is that Nintendo is, so sanitized and you know you know they might have a pile of star trek shit behind them but at least in star trek there's the occasional message of goodwill or whatever in nintendo it's just about you know the play or whatever and there's no real ulterior message beyond that in mm. a lot of their games
2: so i don't have a I, this this doesn't go to a specific company or specific property but i i would actually argue the the worst set is uh, a very specific kind of gamer who is playing, like, I don't want to single out any one game, but usually, like... Fortnite. Yeah, well... <laughs> usually, like, um, like, medieval European uh, mm. <laughs> history or (laughs) um so like when i talked to to pat wyman um for the article uh he he's both a historian by trade and also like he likes to play games and he ends up playing like fall of rome or you know civilization and he made a real good point that there's like there's a lot of and and he deals with this in the fandom for like his podcast and such is there's a lot of people who are into those things for like real terrifying specific purposes about like picturing like a pure white europe or uh some fantasy that they have about like all kinds of like white supremacist fantasies and like heart of civilization fantasies and like the games that go around those things tend to have a, a bunch of it didn't make it into the piece but Mordhau had a a thing recently where mm-hmm. they were talking about you know different character models and people flipped out. There was a thing, um, I think it was like a Total War Rome game where they female generals. Yeah, yeah, Rome exactly. Through Total War. They added
0: female generals, and uh, well, the reaction was about what we would expect. We we yeah, definitely it,
1: covered that in an earlier episode. They freaked out,
2: and I think that. As far as I can tell, like the the reason those people are even more concerning is like they're playing games as part of like a very specific worldview that that is like powering a lot of real, real malicious stuff. And so those those people like scare me on a level like beyond even like Nintendo stands, I would say. Mm.
1: Well, I was just about to say that the going back to your article a little bit, the one another group that can definitely challenge uh, my assertion are the uh, Call of Duty fans in general. And like uh, not just the multiplayer. Um you mentioning uh Oliver North popping up in Call of Duty at the start of your episode and it definitely spoke to me because this past winter um with I got an old PS3 and a bunch of Call of Duties came with them. So I played through them all and that moment in Call of Duty Black Ops <laughs> 2. Black Ops 2 was like i have a real strong stomach for stuff across the board it was disgusting on a level that i honestly surprised me just because the, the reactionary propaganda of you just being the cia in the 80s like one of the worst people in the most destructive times is it's incredible and to have call of duty you know, have these and try to paint them as being apolitical. Even during the 80s, when this was all going on, Oliver North was fairly well disgraced. And to still have people in your uh, your comments that maybe we'll talk a little bit later, you know, defend it and
2: kind of whitewash it is is crazy. There are plenty of arguments to be made about, like, the content of some games and whether or not it's it's actually conservative or not, or if that's just, like how things are interpreted but jingoistic first person shooters that are like uh glorifying you know war criminals from the 80s in the united states i think that's about as clear cut as it gets and Mm. boy like even by those standards the history of the call of duty games is like wild like you said like some of it you look into and you're like i can't believe they actually did that that is that's really wild there was a Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff i couldn't get into detail because i just didn't have room but every Call of Duty game has been pretty gross on like a pretty straightforward level and they've, they've worked with like military consultants, uh, like, There isn't quite the connection in video games that there is in the movie industry where it's like real clear on paper that there's money going back and forth for various different reasons and that, you know, you spent a billion dollars on Battleship and Captain Marvel and whatever, and and who knows what they're getting back and forth. But they like the Call of Duty line has definitely had relationships with a whole bunch of people in the military and the CIA and called people in as consultants. And like I mentioned in the article, um, one of their writers and directors ended up, Working as a consultant for the Atlantic Council, and some of his ideas at the Atlantic Council were like, we should put put ununiformed soldiers in schools to protect everybody, and then if the public doesn't like it, we should do what we do in the games industry and use marketing to brainwash them. And oh my god, like, literally, like uh, the, the Guardian article I've got linked in there had some quotes that, like, right off the bat, are super concerning. So it, it's mm-hmm. like even by game standards, like. Some of that stuff is just straight in your face. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff from uh, one of the Call of Duty Ghost games where you're infiltrating Venezuela and shutting down Jesus. power stations and, like, a whole bunch of stuff that is... I, I'm not going to say played out exactly as they laid it out, but, like... That Six, seven, eight years later, it's, it's going down in a very similar manner to what they lay out. It's, it's just real. If, if you want to talk about something that is like on its face concerning that it's it's not even below the surface there, it's it's straight up. This, this is United States propaganda.
0: That is fucked up. I mean, I knew about like the power outages that were happening in Venezuela, but I didn't realize that they literally had them in the fuck in a fucking video games years before
2: Yeah, there's a point in the game where you, like, assassinate somebody wearing a red beret. (laughs) He's eating empanadas out of his desk when you're doing it, too real on the nose stuff like not n- not even below the surface at all and the the standard answers for well this isn't political at all get even more <laughs> ridiculous when you start talking about that kind of stuff or, or people saying um for the newest call of duty one of the interviews with with two of the creators lately they basically said well for this to be political w- we would have to have a perspective on it but we're really showing you like multiple perspectives what? So... but it
0: has a perspective it's first person <laughs> right.
2: like, well and beyond that like these people are narrative directors for games and ne- never had the like storytelling 101 writing a story is about making choices and you choose what you're showing to people and like I like it that's just not how writing works or or, or how anything works really you you whatever perspectives you're presenting you're still making choices about that and and I have some bad news for them about the choices that they're making and whose perspective is getting shown there
1: it's it's incredible to me too because it's obvious that call of duty in this latest iteration is trying to lean even harder into that you know gritty this is what real warriors are like in a very you know uh, seal team 6 kind of way that yeah. is incredibly ugly in a very pointed point of view and it's it's incredible to me that they they keep trying to say that with a straight face before at the very least there was a slightly goofy edge to call of duty in some ways because mm-hmm. you know it's it's taken a long time even for call of duty to kind of kind of like clean up some of its like sillier storytelling bits so it, it always comes off goofy even when it's ugly but now it seems like they've nailed it a lot more
2: yeah there were a lot of people who watched uh, i haven't followed the, the newest games development that much but there were a lot of people who watched uh one of the early clips from that and said it, it like you said said it had the vibe of like watching somebody on seal team six with a handheld and then it was like real real disturbing to like watch watch that go down
1: there's a part in the trailer where a civilian gets shot in a very sudden manner and then it reveals she's holding a bomb like retroactively Uh, like oh it's okay this is justified
0: exactly
1: and, you know, it's it's the sort of thing where you could almost see that and just be like, is this making a statement? But it's clear from what they're talking about that it's that is the ugliest way possible. That it's just like we just got a sense when the enemy oh. has a bomb, we know which ones to shoot.
2: Even on the more like over the top end is like I'm playing multiplayer and I get a 10 kill streak or whatever and they let me drop like. I don't know like napalm and at some level like you realize that's r- ridiculous and and i'm not saying that means people are going to go out and drop napalm but like you end up like, like glorifying u.s weapon systems which you know is mm-hmm. is pretty straightforward There's there's not much argument to be made there
1: the newest one has white phosphorus yeah yeah that's the one i was thinking of yeah yeah
0: we literally had morons in our mentions because I quote the article and it was just like uh, there are gamers who think having white phosphorus in the, your
2: game is less political than having a woman. in it." I, I got a whole bunch of real good quotes from uh, Lana Polanski that I, I ended up having to cut. But what, one of the things she talked about was it's real telling like what gets considered political and what doesn't and usually like white phosphorus not political at all like having people who aren't white in your game a huge political affront mm-hmm. that, that yeah. you like you're shoving your politics down my throat now and it, and that's that's what it all comes down to at the baseline is like anything that they can consider you know status quo is is not political and and anything that like questions that is very much political
1: and you make a point that I think we we've we've covered a couple times on here, but it's worth repeating: is that game companies, at least you know the people making the real money, enjoy cultivating the gamer identity around that dividing line of the status quo. You know, you you have all of those Jeff Kaplan and David Cage and the Division Two creative director. You know, despite having all these political, uh, like obviously political elements in their game. They're they're saying, oh, it's not political because they know what kind of shitstorm it's going to cause the second they they dip their toe, and that is what the the game companies want because that's what's going to keep them in power, keep them from being challenged, because they know that they have a free army of shitheads on the internet who will freak out any time that this is challenged in even any ways.
2: I, I think there's a, a couple levels to it. One is that, like, once they started, like, th- this is obviously an active thing that got done, you know, th- throughout the 80s, and not that, like, games were the only thing marketing to white males only in the 80s, let's be, be honest. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, like, once they fell into that and, and it created that feedback loop, the, the article I cited from Polygon, um, No Girls Allowed, is a, a, a real good layout of, like, how it just became this, this feedback loop. So eventually, you know, you get to 2000, and you've been doing this for 15 years, and and you built up this super strong core of consumers, on some level, you're you're stuck with them. And so what Polanski argues like real, real well in, in the Rhizome article that she wrote was, you basically end up turning them into a weapon. And because you know, you, you've got them in there, they're super hostile. And jeff kaplan and bobby Kotick aren't getting death threats from these people the Mm -hmm. guy who changes the stats on a machine gun in a game that people liked is the one who is like getting death threats online from people and so you or literally some random level designer that had nothing to do with the problem yeah yeah or or whoever they see which oftentimes ends up being the more marginalized people anyway because they're more vulnerable targets and there's no labor uh, protections to help them. And so they end up throwing their workers under the bus and, and even more like using it as a bludgeon to like anybody gets out of line and, and will throw a mob at you and you'll get doxxed or swatted or worse. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know how much like actively nefariously that's being thought about, but it definitely like every one, new one of these that plays out, you can see who's taking the brunt of it and and who's being appeased. And and it always ends up being like some underpaid developer or you know somebody who uh like you said sometimes not even the person responsible for it ends up being a, a scapegoat and it's been happening since like way 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 before gamergate i mean like pretty much as long as the internet's been around this this stuff's been going down like i, I have some examples in there from five ten years before gamergate went down mm-hmm. where people were getting driven out of the the industry and now it's just down to a science where like you, you have to appease these people, and and the people that that get thrown under the bus are the workers every time.
1: I, I agree with you when you said when you talk about uh, how this was very prevalent before Gamergate, because right before Gamergate kind of bubbled up, there was a real kind of like renaissance and credibility for video games after the like silly Ebert art discussion, and there was uh... kind of like a, Indiecade and stuff. Yeah. was offering a lot of legitimacy and a lot of people were just like, I actually really enjoy Fez, et cetera, et cetera. And it felt like this snapback response to being like, no, these yeah. are our toys actually. <laughs> and, and it was just the spark of, um, Iran the letter about Zoe Quinn that kind of gave everybody the excuse to freak out about what they already felt.
2: I think it was like, uh, a- not a perfect storm, but, but there were a lot of different forces all at once that just kind of like boiled up. But, but I hadn't thought about it as, as like a, a backlash to a building tide, which it, it, it might have been in some ways.
0: You know what I think is interesting to me is that in the sort of pre-Gamergate era, gamers were still like extremely reactionary. But I don't think that that reaction was necessarily pointed towards progressive politics Because for the longest time, what you had in, like, the 80s and the 90s was a a moral panic by, like, Christian and conservative politicians trying to blame video games for things like, like the Columbine killers who were, you know, in fact Nazis. They were like, oh, well, they actually made a level for their school in Doom, so, oh, we really want people to play Doom?
2: I think games are real susceptible to the, the moral panic stuff again because of what we talked about before, where like you've got a brand new thing that's been been marketed as something frivolous, so you you can't say but but what about Citizen Kane about games? I mean, you can, and that but it's it's not a cultural touchstone uh, for as many people, and so I think it's easier to target them with the moral Citizen panic.
0: Kane of video games. You mean Kirby? obviously (laughs) Uh, but I think that maybe in some ways that moral panic era sort of cemented some of the just gridlocked reactionary views of video games as nothing more than apolitical entertainment and toys because I think that a huge argument at the time was basically like you know video games cannot affect you in this way and I think that a lot of people sort of took that to heart and internalize it in a way which is basically like video games can't affect you at all. They're not art. They're toys.
2: Yeah, I think there's that real fine line between the um, this is going to make you go out and commit some horrible act and hey, the things you consume might actually impact how you think about things. <laughs> and like, there, there's, yeah. there's a big gap between those two things. And, and I think people have trouble with it not being binary.
0: Cue the picture of Garfield saying, you are not immune to propaganda. <laughs> Correct. Uh, which is especially nefarious when like, nobody will acknowledge the politics of video games. And you have you have the literal fucking coup plans for Venezuela in a Call of Duty game. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think the other thing, too, that I I, I eventually had to cut this because I was just going way, way over long about it. But I don't know that this is necessarily unique to the United States now or or, or any time. But we're in a place where, like, our actual elected officials will say that stuff is not political. And so, like, oh my God. I, I, I don't know that that's, like, so new, but we are very, very... Um, susceptible to not politicizing things and uh and, and you'll find it you know from the fact that like espn is trying to run a sports wonderland where like sports don't interact with anything else and anybody who talks <laughs> about that is is a, a problem at where mm. it's like the opposite view of intersectionality where like everything is in a silo and is not impacted by anything else and so like when you have that all the time like it makes it real easy for games that you know again (laughs) that a bunch of people think are frivolous a religious
0: cult in the united states who has religious overtones and a message strangely similar to our current political climate ubisoft definitely not political not political (laughs)
2: <laughs> and and on the Ubisoft front, the uh, oh, they're the, the fucking they're, worst. They're so they're they're stretching the storytelling thing. They're t- they're actually taking like a different angle than everybody else. What they're saying is like, we are actually providing you with every possible perspective, so we can't mm-hmm. possibly be political, which which is one like an impossibility even right. in games that that let you do more things. A- and so they end up like hiding in this like, no, we're actually we're gonna give you everything. Uh we're mm-hmm. we're not just like giving you like we just one present thing. you
0: situations. We don't comment right.
2: on it at all. It's the ultimate like just asking questions or both <laughs> sides of stuff. Cause like they're saying like we made these choices and we're giving you every possible side. So like the, nothing that we've done here is is saying anything whatsoever, which is even maybe even more nefarious than some of the other people's angles. Like even even on this level, the absolute worst when it comes to that.
1: Ubisoft has at the start of every one of their games has that this game was made by a multitude of people of different beliefs and creeds and races. And I feel like that ties in so well with what you're talking about. Cause they're, they're trying to use that as a protection. I'm just like, Oh, it's not just, it's not just, you know, the bros making video games, mm-hmm. it's everybody. But then they also kind of hide it behind the shield or, or the
2: disgusting French. <laughs> i was worried about making it too american focused ubisoft is a french company a whole bunch of these mm. games are made in europe uh or or japan or various other places and this seems to like carry across all of mm. like it's almost like capitalism <laughs> is international <laughs> it it may actually be
0: <laughs> I, I want to make a small point here and that is when we're talking about like this this anti intersectionality the siloing of all political issues to or all issues not to impact one another they're all just in their own little world that couldn't possibly intersect at all i think that there's an interesting point made about fascism that considers it the aestheticization of the political it's taking political issues and it's making them into an aesthetic and I think that maybe that could be related slightly to the current developments in uh, the politics of games, considering how deeply reactionary they
2: are. I definitely think that's true. I think, too, and I couldn't get too much into this because it was uh, it was getting a little academic. But going into this, I read Adorno's um, Culture Industry, which is... Mm-hmm. The theory is even deeper, like where he he's not he would not so much say like these people are making reactionary choices as like the nature of mass media in this system is that it can't be any other way really, and that it all just constantly reinforces itself, and all you're getting is like sequel after sequel of the same things. And he wrote that in like 1944, where like he was already like, yeah, jazz is like jazz acts like <laughs> something different but really like you're just doing the same improvisation that everybody else is doing and all our movies are garbage and like and and you read it and it like this is before the marvel universe and mm. and it it all plays out where you know the the theory is more or less like yeah this this is all built to like reinforce itself and and so like if both holes of your society are both pretty fascist and 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 you live in a fascist society then the, the at least the big triple a entertainment that everyone consumes is all just gonna like cycle right back into that and so everything because all your assumptions assume that that's normal and that that's status quo and so like none of that pol- is political it's just how things are and you end up with games that did back that and and it's non-political assassinations of world leaders Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the standard. The thing that's not standard would be having like a black main character. Like that Mm. would be a problem because that's not what our culture has said is normal. And, and so I don't agree with, with 100% of it, but it is so (laughs) uh, it's so like prescient that in the forties he was writing stuff that would directly apply to what everyone is saying about, you know, monoculture now.
0: The way that you were talking about like normal how our, our society has basically determined like these deeply reactionary things to be to be the the default for everything like you know how whiteness is default uh maleness is default it just made me think of the joe biden quote where he's like poor kids are just as bright oh, as white oh, kids cool. yeah <laughs> Dude, 100%. talk about
2: pulling back the curtain there like... <laughs>
1: In video games too, I think it's interesting because you connect with this kind of the story and the art. I don't want to say less, but the the reason that you're there for the game is because you want to make the the Tetris blocks, you want to make Mario defeat Bowser, that kind of shit. And it's really easy to disconnect. I want to swallow some people as Kirby. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, Um, and that's what people get most out of the games, and so it it feels just like all of this is just more window dressing. So when to them, you know, seeing Tracer's ass presented in an <laughs> incorrect way, it it, it 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 is political to them because they don't know how to express that kind of disruption in their gaming instincts. So I think that mm. with what you're talking about with Adorno um, is, I think even a little bit truer to video games because with the movie, ostensibly, not everybody watches movies. To, to get real deep with them, but you're supposedly sitting there only for the story. insufferable
0: people like us,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, but with games, you know, I'll, I would say a majority of games you can ignore the story, you can ignore the music, um, you know, might not be as enriching because you're there for whatever gameplay mechanics they have uh, designed for you.
2: So, the argument would be in theory. Because of the interactivity that you don't have in other uh, mediums, you should be able to do certain things where you like connect with people's empathy and put them in situations. But in reality, what you get is the same argument you get about like VR, which is like, oh, we're going to take somebody in VR and we're going to drop them into like. The scene of a natural disaster and they're going to understand everything about what it's like to be in a country who gets hit by a hurricane. And and it doesn't work that way at all. Like it ends up with like people doing like misery tourism or like thinking they understand things that they don't. And, and so like you end up saying, hey, you should be deeper into this because it's interactive. But like you said, what you end up is. I'm distracted by the fact that I got to click on these blocks and what I don't see is like, oh yeah, I'm staging a coup in a South American country while mm. I'm doing that. I think it has the potential to to do more and, and many games do. Like I, I do think there's, yeah. there's games that have incredible stories and, and music and such, but I, I think that those mechanics sometimes hide the thing that's right there on the surface.
1: And and the human stuff that, uh, that people do connect with always ends up being, Like, you know, I don't want to necessarily totally discount it, but it's also feels extremely silly. Uh, Misandria, previous guest on the podcast, just flipped their shit over somebody just like, after playing Red Dead Redemption 2, I finally made some chili and I feel it's the first thing I ever cooked and it's real special and it's just like the most basic-ass chili imaginable and they, they just shared it with the community. And it's like great that you're starting to cook, but also like that's what you got out of the big cinematic super game (laughs) is I'm going to cook some chili.
2: (laughs) Whatever you can take away from art, I guess,
0: but (laughs) a point going back to what you said about how the mechanical aspects of video games are almost like a hypnotic distraction from the context and the story. And it pulls you out of like this context and makes you into like a, a click machine. That, that goes around mindlessly slaughtering world leaders uh, in a non-political way. Uh, and I think that that's in a really interesting and good point. And I think the only games I, I can think of like off the top of my head, like three games that manage to use mechanics in a way to actually subvert your expectations and really force you to think about what you were doing and not allow you to get into the hypnotic aspects of gameplay. So there's like Bioshock with uh, the infamous scene where mm-hmm. would you kindly, you know, this whole time you've been doing like the tutorial and all these little quests and it's a linear game. So you never question what you're doing and why until it's revealed to you that you're actually uh, uh, being mind controlled, which I think was just a brilliant twist on that, that aspect of a sort of hypnotic gameplay cycle. Uh, And the second would be Spec Ops The Line, which obviously forces you to engage in gameplay mechanics and then rubs your nose in it afterwards. Yeah. Uh, And last, I guess, would be, I haven't played this one, but um, Braid integrates the stories and mechanics in a very interesting way. And I think that it's really interesting how uncommon it is for games to shake you out of that gameplay loop to really make you think about what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I think you get things like the biggest like aaa ish one I can think of is like Nier or something where like mm. they're doing like meta commentary on video games within video games. Recommended by uh, it's SJW Watch on Steam <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. for, for, for having sexy characters
2: doing sexy yeah, things. I have a feeling that's in the neighborhood of uh, the people who watch RoboCop and don't realize it, has it to say <laughs> about anything else. Oh, you, you need know.
0: to see this if you haven't before. <laughs> Recommended T Zero oh triggers SJWs. Developer supports sexy women in video games and has been targeted for having sexy women in high heels as a protagonist.
2: Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Which just
0: like talk about missing the fucking forest for the trees.
2: Uh, Metal Gear Solid, another uh, another real good one where people people played like uh, three hundred hours of <laughs> game, games, criticizing how we use digital things and our entire society, and got some real cool stealth kills out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I like what you have to put your controller on the ground. <laughs> <laughs>
2: There are definitely a, a lot of especially a lot of indie games who are like are, are interrogating that, but I think mm-hmm. you're the, the huge list of like the biggest sellers every year are you know another NBA fiFA, NFL uh NHL that you know you, you've played for twenty five years mm-hmm. and they're not gonna shake up the controls. They're you know the thirteenth call of duty where again, you played it for twenty years, they're not gonna shake up how that works. and so like, A lot of those are just they're here to like serve you a little more of what you have already. And so you're not going to get anything that's like really making you question things. You're just going to get something with a a newer code of graphics over the top of of what you already understand how to do.
1: I would even disagree with that slightly in the sense of that Like, I, I, I agree with you that it's it's pretty much the same old same old but if you look at the patterns of like what blizzard is doing with world of warcraft or and the different changes that they're making to battlefield you know they'll they'll put a new coat of paint on it but they'll try to put the same or less in there but extend that with grindy mechanics that give you the loot box or the level or the spray at just the right time so they can you know spend less money on what is the same amount of time you would spend on the game but, you know, I would say is less game overall. They've slashed, um, not that I think World of Warcraft is a particularly like special game or anything like that, but it was huge. And they they took what was a very devoted fan base and they said, well, the, people will play World of Warcraft no matter what. And they've slashed the budget by at least half. And they've just added grinding mechanics because that way Bobby Kotick can have more, you know, flights on Epstein's plane.
2: That's that's the other thing that I I got into a little bit is not only is it like the makeup of the industry and the content of a lot of the bigger games and the advertising, but also just the business model now is such that like you're you've got way less companies able to make games that are enormous and take 500 people to like something like Red Dead Redemption, like the level of detail that they're working at is like such that that just takes man hours and man hours and man hours and, and you can't crank those out. And so they make very safe games that are afraid to offend anybody and then are built to either you've got loot box mechanics or you've got endless DLCs, or you're going to put out a new one of these every year, or there's like, it's, it's always something to continue running it over and over and over again. And like you said, in some cases, taking stuff that used to be more robust and like cutting it down or making you pay for it or making you grind for it somehow because the the actual dollars and cents of how the industry works now have also like conspired to make them even more conservative about how they go about making things. And so you're going to get less risks because if you take a risk and you bomb on a game that costs a hundred million dollars like your studio might shut down like there's no like we're gonna do something Mm -hmm. weird and make a jim jarmish movie uh (laughs) it's all gotta hit every time and then the Mm -hmm. the other thing and and lana talked about this some too that I, i couldn't work it in was like a lot of times they're taking stuff that indie gamers have made or that modders have made or um the the battle royale genre is like a real good example where like one you're basically basing this on a movie that had a lot of commentary about how Japanese society and politics treated their children. You've cut that out completely. You've turned it into <laughs> dropping a hundred people on an island and murdering <laughs> each other is super cool. And initially, like th- there are, uh, there's a long history and there are a bunch of them. But initially, a couple of these were like user made mods and stuff, and and the the industry like. Figures out what works and what people like. And then they glom onto that work that people outside of it have done. And and then now everything is a battle royale game and you've got PUBG and uh fortnite and a billion of them because you know a whole bunch of modders were like hey this would be a cool idea uh and, and it, it's just funny to me that like every single monetary driver they have now is is driving them to be safer and like find more ways to get money out of this and not alienate anyone and so it, it's actually like escalating and getting worse and there's some theories that like five years from now we cannot keep like something has to give somewhere along the line because you you can't just making bigger and bigger better graphics Mm. games you're down to like a fraction of the companies that once did it and they're making a fraction of the games because you just can't turn them out at that rate it's why like the indie space is so awesome and so fascinating because they're Mm. doing a people are doing a lot more interesting things it's just they just don't have the structures or support uh, to, to be able to do it and make a living and that's like an absolute shame shout out shout to out our to... boy yeah Cholestia! Cholestia, who is making <laughs> socialist video games
0: including a really really good game called uh bewitching revolution which is uh an explicitly political game which a cool youtuber called uh let's talk about things i think that's the name of their channel yeah let's talk about stuff Did a video on subtlety is dead, communism, and a witching revolution, which you should check out. You should also play the game, because it's very I
2: watched about half of that, and it was really cool. Uh, Really interesting breakdown of it.
0: Just just always want to shout out to our boy, Try
1: to get as many people Uh playing uh, his games as possible.
2: Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, keep an eye out for
0: Karl Marx Pro Socialist Skating Sim. (laughs) Which, with the
1: idea, uh, was drummed up on this very podcast.
0: (laughs) By us being goofballs. That sounds excellent, Jim Sterling has talked about the rise of the live service game and how it speculated how like people only have so much time in the day, like literally they cannot play more than like one or two of these games at most because they are such massive time hogs, and how that sort of predicts another another crash like the the m m o
2: mania that came before it yeah and it's real interesting that like. They also don't have like unlimited funds to be dropping in. Like, mm. like at some point, a 12 year old can only buy so many outfits. Like,
0: <laughs> Not unless only they've roll- got their mommy's credit
2: card. The other thing is like, obviously, like if Bobby Kodak was making $10 million less a year, maybe we could afford to pay devs to do some of this stuff. But that's that's like- unacceptable. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's the the thing that, like, can't give is shareholder dividends and C-suite executive uh, mm. salaries. Again, like, the workers get stomped in it because you end up having a whole bunch of contractor QA who you work in 90 hours a week for $8 this whole, an hour.
0: You know, this whole being a worker thing sounds pretty awful. It's it's not great. It's not <laughs> great. The
1: one thing I'd like to bring up, too, that, you know, of course, is kind of obvious, but just in what we're talking about of the resources that are quickly dwindling and how what they're doing to play it safe is that the probably the biggest currency that these companies use to keep costs down in a lot of ways is just people who love video games Mm -hmm. just abusing themselves because they want to work in video games and so Mm -hmm. they're able
0: to make barely minimum wage yeah and plus all these people that have been inculcated into this this culture of blindness to the political the sort of reactionary culture when they come into video games they have no conception of organizing as labor or exploitation of the working classes they're just like oh finally i can make video games by working 80 hours a week for no overtime and get fired the instant somebody younger and more hungry than me comes along
1: don't I listen think- to the game journalists complaining yeah. about it. They're bad at <laughs> us. Ian
0: Williams
2: wrote a thing in Jacobin called, you can sleep here all night video. And basically like playing off that about how like you're selling people on like, this is a dream job. How can you complain about it? And everybody wants to work on video games. And at the end of the day, it's just work like, uh, yeah. like, like any, anything else. And And I think they do get, they get a lot of traction off. You're not mining coal. Like that. it's it's the same arguments you get about NFL players or anybody else where yeah. like you're finding, you're finding a way to throw workers under the bus because like their job isn't the worst possible thing. <laughs> <ever>. uh, <laughs> and, and so you end up QA and I've i worked QA in, in other IT industries. And from everything I hear, like QA in video games is just absolutely brutal because there's 300 people in line behind you who are willing to test Call of Duty. And if you don't want to take you know minimum wage and terrible conditions like somebody else will take your job behind you and and then they will just burn through people and burn them out because they're they're considered you know they're not head rock star programmer and so like it it just it's wild how how people dismiss all that as like well i'd do anything if i could work in games and once they're there like they might realize that you know 90 hours a week ain't great uh no matter what you're
0: And then once they do realize it, they either get fired of, like, a cyclic fight firing after a big project is done, and they realize how shitty it is to work for the game industry, so they move to, like, a programming or software industry that isn't gaming that treats its workers more in line with, like, how the rest of the professional world does. But there's always, like, a whole bumper crop of young people willing to step in and are completely ignorant, and there's no, no inherited knowledge... Mm-hmm. of the exploitation that they're going
2: through from yeah it, the older game game devs and just like you know the the outcome of like Gamergate or any of that is like the most vulnerable people get driven out then other vulnerable people don't want to get into it because they have no one in front of them paving the way because they're all gone and they all got stomped on and it just cycles over and over again where like you just end up with Three hundred new white kids who get brought in to do this and and that's, that's and they're it. the <laughs>
0: absolute yeah.
2: worst people for
0: trying to form a union because they've speaking for myself you know when you grow up in the United States, you hear all sorts of shit about organized labor and unions and stuff like that and it's a socioeconomic class as well you know you have enough money to go to school to learn a uh, programming or whatever other game dev skills you need, and then you go into the workforce, and you just like have no conception of that.
2: Yeah, and as you've cultivated like a super conservative like fan base and workers and games and everything, no one loves unions more than super conservatives. So uh, <laughs> obviously, you, you're not you're not getting a lot of support there. And then you get the same like, well, why do you need a union? You're working a dream job uh, that you get from from everybody else. Who,
0: why do you? Why are you mad about being in your hamster cage? Yeah, gave you a little wheel. <laughs> You've got the big bottle that, ooze, that oozes gamer grub. <laughs> Why are you upset? <laughs> you work 100 hours a week on your dream. Isn't this what you want? This is what you wanted.
1: I play you- video games for 100 hours a week, and I have no friends, and I'm about to be evicted, and and I would love to work in games.
2: I'll be real, real curious to see um, kind of morbidly. So to see where things will be in, you know, five years or 10 years. And if, mm-hmm. if it keeps, keeps escalating at the scale or if like something, something gives. And the, the thing I am real optimistic about is, you know, there, there is some optimism about labor organization for the first time in, in a long time. And, yeah. and yeah. on, on that front, like, I'm not saying things are great or that, that, there aren't huge strides to be made, but at the very least, like some level of protection for people, um, could go a long way. Like everyone always underestimates what kind of things that can do, but it, it could go a long way in all kinds of areas. Um, I, all the way down to indie games and and people being able to say something different and interesting. Um, it's it's not a panacea and it's not gonna like make magic happen. But it, it just even basic organization for a lot of people would would at mm. least be a step towards solving some of these problems. Game
0: Dev Unite actually managed to uh, create an official union in the United Kingdom. Really? Yeah. So like about eight months ago, the uh, Game Workers Unite finally managed to get incorporated uh, incorporate a union and start getting members but uh that is really cool yeah it's a crucial first step and hopefully the us will soon be there as well
2: there's also some stuff on the level of like just individual shops like the the shop that made i believe they're french that made dead cells is like Yep. horizontally organized um basically like, i i'm i don't want to misstate this but they're they're hor- horizontally organized in some way that like everybody gets the same salary and there are no bosses um or like um, the the team that made Night in the Woods just developed a, a co op that they're using to build their next game. So like there are like people trying to make this work, and that's I, I'm not a nihilist about it at all. I I do think that like th- things could be better on some level, and and like that's not going to solve a whole bunch of deeply entrenched you know AAA issues, but but it it's sure yeah. a step.
0: It won't make game journalists better at video games, unfortunately. <laughs> that is. <that, laughs> Sadly not. <laughs> We've talked about this quite a bit. We should probably move on to our other topics, uh, unless someone has something more to say. Sure. No, that sounds good, Reese. Uh, sounds sounds good to me. If if Josh still has uh, the time. Yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah, we're gonna Sick. do a two hour podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> our favorite. Hello everyone. As I'm sure you could guess, we went a little long on this episode, so we decided to split it into two parts. So, without further ado, here are the patrons of the episode. Robert Miles. Friend of a friend of the pod's cousin, a.k.a. Konki. Nine Citrine Winters Beautify the Heavens, a.k.a. Noctseeger. Nate M. <laughs> Fuck me. Is this going to be a trend now? Are you are all going to change your names to something horribly long? All right. Nate M. Number one, a.k.a. Pious and the Heated Gamer. <laughs> Don't know. I guess you hit up the, against the character limit there, huh? All right. Uh, Jared Kuntz. Thank you. Higgins the Seagull. Nick Rubin. Nathan Melby. Tholos... Kyle Reederman, Eggs, Tom Devan, the video game man, Noah Commbrink, Jack Salmons, Dissonant Dragon, Brandon Carey, and last but not least, Jordan. Thank you all so much for contributing to the podcast. Make sure to remember to rate this in your preferred podcasting app because apparently that helps us with the algorithm. Praise be to the algorithm. And we will see you all in part two. Bye-bye.